I'm going to encourage you, church, to go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 6. Deuteronomy chapter 6. As we're looking at um, what is not only one of my favorite passages of Scripture this morning, but what is one of the more formational passages of Scripture. This passage is so formational, all three of the synoptic Gospels uh, note Jesus' quoting of it as the greatest commandment. And we'll, we'll get to that more in just a little bit. But I want to start this morning by telling you uh, how this came to be, a little story of how this came to be, one of my favorite passages of Scripture and how it became so formational for me uh, as uh, this is a, a little bit of an embarrassing story. So when I began my master's studies, I had a class uh, in which there were only two of us. It's really hard to hide in a class where there's only one other person in the class with you. So that was a, a challenge first and foremost. But teaching this class was a new professor. He's new to ETBU. He's not a new professor. He's Dr. Tommy Sanders. He's former head of children's ministry at Lifeway. He was a children's pastor at Park City's Baptist Church in Dallas and uh, also really just a, a really well-rounded uh, in, in terms of practical ministry and then ministry on the college campus. And uh, his assistant provost at the time as well. So Dr. Tommy Sanders, Dr. Sanders, who is now a dear friend of mine, uh, I texted him to remind him of this story earlier this week, and he got a good laugh uh, about it while he was in Israel right now. So uh, in this class, so one of the first uh, class meetings that we actually had, where we would actually, since there were only two of us, we would meet in his office. And, um, and so we're, we're talking about uh, the, the class, I forget the actual class title, but it was family, youth, family, and young adult ministry or something like that. And, um, and so anyways, we were talking about, and he was kind of giving us his philosophy of ministry and just kind of what drove his ministry and one of the more foundational passages of scripture that shaped the way he, he viewed his family ministry, his children's ministry, and, and all of that. And he said, of course, was the Shema. And he, of course, looking at me, I think he could read me like a book, saying that my eyes were just kind of blank. And he said, of course, you know, the Shema, right? And I was like, of course, fake it to you. Make it like, oh, yeah, come on, Shema, right? And he's like, what is it? And I was like, well, you know... It's the Shema, right? <laughs> so uh, anyways, he called me out on that. And he said, you just graduated and you don't know the Shema. And I was like, well, and then he said it and I was like, oh, yeah, of course. And he's like, I'm going to have to tell your dean about this. And I was like, no, you're not. And he, of course, takes any sort of challenge very seriously. He's like, oh, I won't. So he did. And then I'm one, the next day, I'm walking through uh, Scarborough Hall, and I hear yelled out, Mr. Dover. And I was like, and I look, and there is uh, the dean of the religion department saying, yelling from across uh, so that other people could hear it, you didn't know the Shema? And I was like, well, I knew it, right, but I tried to worm my way out of it. So... Anyways, I tell you that story because I had some familiarity with the Shema, 
But I hadn't internalized it. I hadn't really taken to heart what this call meant. And so this morning, as we look at what is undoubtedly one of the more foundational texts for us as believers, we will come face to face with our obligation of obedience and the overwhelming reality of what that obedience entails and the reward that it brings. So what's at stake here in Deuteronomy is man's responsibility to God, particularly to hearing God's word and then living according to it. All right? So I'm going to ask you to go ahead and stand in honor of the reading of God's word as we read from Deuteronomy chapter 6, starting in verse 1. Now this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you that you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son, by keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. Hear, therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give you with great and good cities that you did not build, and houses full of all good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. And when you eat and are full, then take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. This is the word of God. Let's pray, church. God, as we come before you and we read what is undoubtedly a truly formational passage of Scripture, which you have given us, a command which you have given us to love you with all of our heart's focus and intention, I pray, God, that you would help us to hear these words this morning and then to do them, to hear your word, to see it clearly laid out for us, and then to live according to it. Lord, let us not leave this place simply having physically and audibly just heard your word, but let us internalize it, let us know it, and then let us live it. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated, church. So Deuteronomy, maybe more so than any other book in the Pentateuch, uh, shapes the theology of God's election and work and purposes for Israel. And this is specifically because of Moses' thorough grasp of God's will. Moses being the anointed mouthpiece of God at this point, the leader of Israel. 
And the one who is going to the tent of meeting and, and is, has a relationship with the Lord, as meets with the Lord face to face as one meets with a friend. And that all comes to bear on the pages and in the words of Deuteronomy. So as he's preparing the people for the promised land, he's preaching God's word to them. And that's the, the context and the timing of where Deuteronomy is taking place. He's preaching God's word to them that they may be in awe of God's glory and humbled at God's grace and encouraged by God's provision and providence as they prepare to obediently go and do just as the Lord has designed. So Deuteronomy is a collection of sermons given by Moses to the people of Israel in the plains of Moab, at the end of the 40 years of wandering. That's kind of where we're at here. This is kind of as Moses is addressing the people and he's kind of reminding them of God's covenant, reminding them of God's law and the importance of keeping it as they go into this land. So Moses uses here the structure of ancient Near Eastern treaties to emphasize this covenant relationship between Israel and the Lord to remind them of their covenant obligation. And we see as we begin here, again, read, reading again verses 1 and 2. Now, this is the commandment. So again, the, the law, the word. So not a soul commandment, but the commandment, the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, that you may do them in the land to which you are going over. So from the beginning, he's stating that the purpose of this is not just that you have knowledge of it, but that that knowledge affects your practice and your life, that you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son, by keeping all his statutes in his commandments, which I command you, all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. So he says there in verse 2, the purpose of of which they are going over to possess and that they are being taught this, is that they may fear the Lord their God generationally, you and your son and your son's sons. How? How do they show their fear of God? How do they show their reverence of God? By keeping all his statutes and commandments. So the impetus here of the Shema, the, traditionally what is known as the Shema starts there in verse 4, but we'll get to that here in a little bit. So the impetus of the Shema and of the commandment of, of these sermons, of everything that Moses is doing here in Deuteronomy, is that if we hear God's word, but then continue to live a life that denies the existence of that truth, then we deny God and therefore remain guilty according to that truth. Again, so what is being shaped here and what's being explained right there in verses 1 and 2 is that if, if we hear God's word, but then continue to live a life that denies the existence of that truth that we've heard, then we are continuing to deny God in our hearts and therefore remain guilty according to the truth that we've heard. The point here is that God's word demands a response. You either respond in submission and therefore obedience to God's word, or you ignore it and therefore remain condemned. There can be no indifference when it comes to the truth of God's word, because even indifference is itself a response. 
because it's an act of denial of God. And that brings to the first point there on your outline this morning. Hopefully you grabbed one on your way in. If not, don't worry, you can take notes and uh, everything will be on the screen behind me. But the first point there is to fear the Lord is to live in response to his word. And that's what we see there in verses 1 and 2. That he's giving them, he's teaching them these these statutes, these rules, he's repeating all these things to them. That you may fear the Lord, you and your son and your son's sons, by keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I commanded you. So how do you show the fear of the Lord? How do you show reverence, honor, respect? How do you show that the Lord is Lord? You obey his word. This is indeed the emphasis behind all that Moses exhorts here to the people in this great call. Not to simply hear these words, but to listen to them and then be changed by them. To hear them and to do them. This idea of fearing the Lord that you see there, and we see it not only here, it's, it's in our uh, Psalm 86, verse 11, our scripture reading for this month. It's, it's all throughout the Bible. Fear of the Lord, fearing the Lord, this command. This is, of course, a complete thought, throughout, a complete theme throughout God's word. And it can often, I see, cause confusion for people, right? How can we love one whom we fear? How can we fear one whom we love? This, this idea, because our idea of fear is being terrified and, and cowering, right, to, to hide our face. My son, Brooks, he's, he's afraid of firefighters in full bunker gear, right? Like, like if he sees that mask, he turns. And we were watching uh, his favorite little character, Blippy, the other day. Blippy got in full fire gear. He loves Blippy, but once Blippy put on that fire gear, he turned in fear and was is cuddled up and cowering in my arms, right? That's what we think about when we, when we hear fear. But to fear the Lord is to have a proper understanding of our sinfulness in light of his holiness and righteous judgment upon sin. It's to say, it's to say this, I have realized what it's like to live in active opposition to God's love and the great nature of God's love. So it's to say, I realize my life living outside of that And I realize how great God's love is. And therefore, I desire to do nothing that would place me back in opposition to him. So it's not to say that I live in constant fear that a lightning bolt is going to be thrown down if I do something wrong. But it's to say, I know how great and awesome the creator of this universe is. And I know how great his love is for me. And I desire to do nothing that would place me back in that opposition to him. That's why the call of Deuteronomy and the call of our text, specific text today, and really the call of the Bible as a whole, is to hear and do, to live in that reverent fear of the Lord. Why? For what purpose? Because God has made himself known, bringing me out of darkness into the light, and I shudder in fear that he would give me the just punishment of my debts. And yet he remains faithful. And that, as you see, is Moses' repeated theme, to live in the fear of the Lord because he is faithful. This is the call of the believer, to fear the Lord by keeping his commandments. We move on there to verse 3. Hear therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them. Again, 
this repeated theme, you're going to see it again and again. Hear and do. Hear, therefore, Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you and that you may multiply greatly. So now we're being told about, like, like what's the fruit? What's going to be born from this obedience and this living in fear of the Lord? Hear, therefore, Israel, be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. And so we hear of this just great fruit, this great reward. Everything's going to be awesome. So Moses implores the people to obedience based off of their covenant relationship with God, the purpose of which was to confirm them to be the reflection of his glory to the nations. We need to make sure that we have that right understanding here of these rewards that are listed out there in verse 3. That it may go well with you, that you may multiply greatly, as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. So the Lord is confirming them to be the reflection of him to the nations which they are getting ready to go and conquer and take the land. So this phrase there, as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you, that references us back to God's promise to Abraham, which was what? I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and will give to your offspring all these lands, and in your offspring all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Here's what I want us to see here as we look at these fruits, as we look at this reward of obedience. The next point there on your outline. The reward of obedience is God's glory. Because when we realize what God is is shaping his people and confirming his people to do here, he's not rewarding them so that they can just live fat and happy off the, the fat of the land. The purpose for rewarding them is to live, to be in faithfulness to what he has promised and so that all the nations of the earth shall be blessed through them, that they may know his glory, that they may know his truth and realize who the one true creator God is. So the reward of obedience isn't that we just that, that we try to gain some favor, that we try to get some blessing, some grace from God. The reward of obedience is that we glorify God when we live in obedience to Him. The promise of success was not merely for their benefit, but for the declaration of God's glory. Because here's the thing. The minute that we make obedience about selfish gain, the minute that we look at obedience as I obey and then I receive reward, I obey and then I get this blessing, I obey and I get this mercy. The minute that we make obedience about selfish gain, it's no longer God who we're obeying. We're merely obeying our selfish desires with a religious facade. You see that, right? Because then the real thing that we're seeking is not obedience, but it's the fruit of that. It's what we think we're going to get on the other side of that. So then it's not really God that we're obeying. We're just obeying our selfish desires. What is the desired outcome of your obedience? That's the challenge here. 
What is the desired outcome of your obedience? Are you half-heartedly obeying in hopes of receiving some form of recompense? Or is your obedience simply from that desire that God might be glorified in you? So when you pray for success, when you pray for blessing, when you pray for grace, whose glory are you seeking? When you desire for God to pull you out of the pit, whose glory do you hope to see on the other side of that? What reward do you hope to see on the other side of that? Is the reward a selfish gain or is the reward that God may be glorified in that testimony of pulling you out of the pit? When you dream of going here or there or doing this or that, whose kingdom are you desiring to build? Because what God is preparing the people for and what Moses is wanting the people to understand that they are going to conquer this land, not to build their own kingdom, but to make God's name known. And you'll notice as you read the rest of Deuteronomy that there are many repeated themes throughout the rest of what Moses says, many of which he introduces here in the Shema. So it's like he, he builds off, it's like this is like the introduction, and he continues these ideas and, and kind of expounds on some of these things on forward, kind of turn one chapter there to chapter 7, and you'll see what I'm talking about. Chapter 7, verse 6, we see him continuing in this sermon. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. So that, like, we understand, right? He's chosen them. They're going to be his treasured possession. But verse 7. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it's because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers, that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Chapter 7, verse 9, know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps his covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations and repays to their face those who hate him by destroying them. He will not be slack with one who hates him. He will repay him to his face. You shall therefore be careful to do the commandment and the statutes and the rules that I command you today. So you see, this blessing, once again, is not because of something that they've done. It's not because of their great stature, but it's wholly according to God's love being set on them and his faithfulness to his covenant promise. So this is an important point to note because you'll often hear believers and naysayers question the conquest of Israel at the command of God. Because that's what they're preparing to do. They're preparing to go into the land and there's lots of wars and killing that's about to happen. And so you'll hear believers and naysayers be kind of confused by this. Believers will ask, why is God so angry and bloodthirsty in the Old Testament, but so different in the New Testament? Non-believers will use this as a tool for trying to trip up and counter believers who don't know their Bible. They'll posit, how could a God so loving and so pro-life, as you say, tell his people to slaughter other nations? 
But when we focus on what God is commanding his people to do, and when we focus on the reality of the sinful condition, and that he has to give these commands that his people may be made right and walk in accordance with how he has called them, when we focus on what God is commanding his people to do, we see that he's telling them to rid the land of all these pagan nations who worship all these false gods, to shatter their Asherah poles, to rid the land of the idols, to get rid of their kings who led them to idolatry, to rid the land of those who deny him. And guess what? The warning is, if you deny my word, you stand under that same judgment. And why is he doing this? That the land may be covered in the love and worship of him. So this is not simply God telling his people to go to war and conquest that they might build some great kingdom for themselves. This is God's judgment against sinful, rebellious humanity. And this is his, him preparing and, and sanctifying his people to do his work. This is why Israel must be so intent on expressing their love for God in obedience to his word. As we see, Moses continues back in chapter 6, back in our passage now. Pick back up in verse 4. And this is the Shema, as I know by heart now. <laughs> Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. To love is to make something the intent object of our affections. As we see, Moses later reminds them, again, as we just read in chapter 7, of God how, and how God set his love on them. This is a, a line of distinction, though, that I fear few in our day see. We see far too many churches muddy the water by overemphasizing the call of Come as you are. God loves you just as you are. Is that true? Absolutely. But unfortunately, that's only a partial gospel. The call of the gospel is come as you are and be forever changed. Not come as you are and be comfortable with that and satisfied with that. But that God loves you where you are and he loves you enough that he has set his love on you to call you to love him. Him above yourself. And that's the message here of the Shema. We see far too many think that because they believe in some vague, culturally Christian idea of God, that they are somehow saved because of that knowledge, while never truly repenting of sin. A clear distinctive of the people of God is their intentional love of God, not of themselves not of their church, not of what they can gain from their faith, but their love of God. But how do we express our love of God? How do we show these distinct affections? It's the next point there on your outline. Obedience is the overflow of a heart pierced by the truth of God's love. So the call here isn't Obey and then come to get everything figured out. The call here 
is to have a heart that loves God so completely that you can't help but walk in obedience to his word. The clear command here is that those who know God's word and know God have a responsibility to love God with every fiber of their being. Our predominant response to hearing God's revelation of himself is to be that we love God ferociously, completely, and zealously. Why? Because God's revelation of himself is itself the most gracious thing that he could do for sinners who have actively shunned him with our hearts. We love because he first loved us, is what we see in 1 John. And this is how it's, it's realized first and foremost. The God said, it wasn't because you were great that I set my love on you. It was because of my faithful loving kindness. And now, how do I want you to respond according to that? My command is that you love me above all else. Our primary act of obedience is to love God as a response to his overwhelming love of us. And when we love God with every fiber of our being, as I said, we can't help but love the things that he gives us. And that's the idea here, is that these blessings are not to take the place of God. Is that when we love God and therefore we are just completely, every time he blesses us with something, overwhelmed at our undeservedness for that. The question is, folks, can we truly say this of ourselves this morning? Have we allowed the things that he's given us to become the object of our love rather than he who gave it? Have we allowed ourselves, our spouse, our children, our jobs, our homes, our toys, whatever it might be, have we allowed those things to become that which we have fixed our love on rather than the giver of all good things? And simultaneously, the challenge here is to properly love and enjoy those things, but only as the overflow of our love for God. Too often, we as the church in America have made the central focus of the Bible to be about God's love for us. The gospel actually provides us with a paradigm shift. It's the, I think the second week in a row that I've used that word, isn't it? Uh, a paradigm shift for, for this thinking. The Bible is about God's command to his creation. They rightly, that they rightly love him with all of their being, and how we looked him in the face and we said no. The gospel is that he made a way for us to even be able to say yes. So does God love us? Absolutely. But that's not the central focus. His love displayed in Christ on the cross is that I want you to love me. It was to make possible a way for us to love him because our hearts don't want to. God has set his love on us, revealing himself to us, making himself known that we might rightly love him with all that we are. It's much easier to love a caricature God whose sole purpose is to love you. 
It's a lot harder to walk in obedience to the one true God who sets his love on man that they may love him by walking according to his word. And that's the challenge here in the Shema. Is that, yes, absolutely, God has shown his loving, faithful kindness to his people, but he's done it that they might walk in obedience and show their undistracted love to him. And you continue reading there in verse 6 of chapter 6. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. (laughs) So these commands are not merely to be obligatorily memorized head knowledge. But the idea here is that the people of God are to make these commands the very core of our being, written on our very hearts. Therefore, what needs to happen to the people of God? Something supernatural has to occur within our hearts in order for us to replace our own law, which we've already written on our hearts. We saw this truth from Paul in Romans 8.8 just a few weeks ago. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So as long as we remain in our flesh, our hearts cannot be set to love God. Something has to happen in our hearts that we might be able to love Him. So what needs to happen? Well, as I said, Moses builds off of these truths that he he introduces here. He builds off of this idea a few chapters later in chapter 10. You can turn there or it'll be on the screen behind me, but uh, Deuteronomy 10, verse 12. See Moses in continuation of this sermon, in continuation of this idea, exposits this to the people. Deuteronomy 10, verse 12. And now Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord which I am commanding you today for your good. Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth with all that is in it. Yet the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them, you above all peoples, As you are this day. Verse 16. Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. For the Lord your God is God of gods and the Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who is not partial and takes no bribe. So, Moses' encouragement here is that you've got to have a heart change in order to do everything that I'm telling you here. Circumcise your hearts that you may walk in obedience to this law. What is the context in which Moses gives us, going back to to chapter 6 now, what is the context in which God has designed this supernatural heart change brought about by his working? What is the context that he has created What's the vehicle which he has designed to make this happen? Continue, verse 7. 
So these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. So that in case you kind of miss the symbolism there that you're teaching them in the house, when you're out and about walking by the way, when you lie down, when you rise. So at all times, in all contexts, inside, outside, as you're living your life, as you're just at home, you're to teach these laws to your children. Verse 8, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. And so the similar to this is like everywhere you look and every time somebody looks at you, they're to see this law. So as you're living it out, people need to see. He's living differently than what I am. Again, that's the purpose here. He's preparing them to go into a land which does not honor him, which does not know him. And so as they go into that land to conquer it, to take it, the purpose is, look, you need to know this truth that I am living out. So when I look at you, I need to see God's law. When you look at your hands, which are the objects too often of sinful man, you need to be able to see God's law and what you do. Your children need to be able to see God's law and how you parent and shepherd them. And so I want to give us here from this portion of our passage three things, three indicators of a heart that has been pierced by the truth of God's love. Three things. So a heart that has been, and this is what we see there and what we just read, verses 7 through 9, that a heart pierced by the truth of God's love diligently propagates God's word. And I know you said, like, why did he use that word propagates, right? Like, like the idea here is when you propagate a plant. Anybody know what you do with that? You pluck a piece off of a healthy living plant, and I don't... You can only do this with certain plants, obviously, so don't go just plucking stuff off of other people's plants. So you pluck a piece off of a living plant and you nurture that, you plant it, you give it the nutrients it needs, the context that it needs, and then that plant itself becomes its own independent plant of the same mother plant. I don't know if that's what they're actually called, so don't take my word on that. But that's the idea here, is that the faith that you are living out, that God's word is to be written on your heart, and that you are to be so diligently living that out, that as you parent your children, and then as they prepare to go and leave and cleave, that they therefore now have God's word written on their hearts. A heart pierced by the truth of God's love diligently propagates God's word from one generation to the next. The other context which God has created, the extended context in which God has created for this is his church. And for them, this point, it's the community of faith, the people together. And for us, it's the church. So we come into here 
as families, individual families, to join together as the family of God here at Southside. So, and that's why in our church, in our membership covenant, it says we will partner with parenting members of our church to teach them to love God and love others. So the idea is that we're partnering with what the parents are already doing. And so that's the obligation for the community of faith as a whole. We continue there. Pick back up verse 10. And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I think, again, that covenant faithfulness must be pretty important. We keep seeing that over and over. To give you, this part I really like, with great and good cities that you did not build and houses full of good things that you did not fill and cisterns that you did not dig and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant and uh, when you eat and are full. So when, you're that, when you have food to eat and your belly's full, remember this. Verse 12. Then take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So when you go in and you reap all of these benefits, don't for one minute think that it's you that has done this. Don't forget that this is a blessing of obedience that you might glorify and shine my glory to all the nations. A heart pierced by the truth of God's love rests in God's provision. And what does that mean rather than to to rest in God's provision? So that is as opposed to hustling after more or seeking self-glorification. So that goes kind of a, a couple of different ways. So, so my, my emphasis there is to rest in God's provision rather than saying, I need more. I have to have more. What I have is not enough. It's to rest in God's provision, realizing that wherever he has you, wherever he has brought you, he has given what you have for that season, for his glory and for your good. But it's also that not to take what he has blessed you with And then seek self-glorification because of that. To build your own kingdom with those blessings. To think that you have done something or accomplished something or that you have rightfully earned something on your own. It's to rest in God's provision. Continuing, verse 13. It is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him shall you serve. And by his name you shall swear. Here we see that a heart pierced by the truth of God's love finds joy in God's glory. This is to be where our greatest joy is found. This is the joy of obedience. This is the roar of obedience that God is glorified in a heart that could not give him glory before. So what does this look like for the church? For the church, these things not only remain true, but they are exponentially multiplied. Why? Because if the love of God displayed in the law was enough, how much more then is the love of God displayed in Christ fulfilling the law on our behalf? Reason for a life lived in response to this love. How much more? Jesus himself, again, when questioned, to quote the greatest commandment. 
He said, he quotes the Shema. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then he said, the second is like it. And quoting Leviticus, he says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So in loving our neighbor as we love ourselves, again, this idea of the community of faith, we are actively reflecting the very love which compelled us to love in the first place. We're actively reflecting the love which has changed our hearts. We're actively reflecting the love which compels us to obey, that God has set his love on us. Therefore, we love greatly. Those who have been loved greatly, love greatly. Those who have been forgiven much, forgive much. Those who have been shown grace, show grace. So as he's challenged to give the greatest commandment, he quotes the Shema, then quotes Leviticus, says the second is like it, you should love your neighbor as you love yourself. Our intent, focused love for God should have such a marked impact on how we love others that they see God's love in how we love them. I want to ask you to turn to Colossians chapter 3 as we prepare to wrap up. Colossians chapter 3. We see some familiar language and ideals here from what we see in and throughout Deuteronomy. As in Colossians 3, Paul is talking about putting on the new self, that imagery, right, of having put off the old self, putting on the new self, And he makes that challenge. If, therefore, you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated, at the right hand of God. Meaning that if you have that new heart, if you've been brought to new life, that your desires, that which you seek, is to be totally different than that which you formerly sought. Where are you to seek... Where, seek the things that are above, seated at the right, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds, so the way that you think, set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And he goes on to say this in verse 12 of chapter 3. As he talks about in the verses in between there and what I just read, putting to death your earthly passions, and he has a whole list of those things. Talking about in, in, these two want, in these you two once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them to death. And then he says this in verse 12 of Colossians 3. Put on then, so this is the new life. This is that new heart, that changed person. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. 
In other words, that changed life is to therefore have an outward impact so that when people look at you and they see how you treat them and how you treat others and they see how you carry yourself and what you do and where you look in times of struggle, that they see the law of Christ written on your hearts. So in Christ, these truths of the law don't change. They're simply exposited for us to live them out in the freedom of the cross. In Christ, those who, as I said a while ago, have been loved much, love much. Those who have been forgiven much, forgive much. Those who have been shown much grace, show much grace. And this is the challenge here of Deuteronomy, to hear God's word and to do it. I'm going to pray for us now. We're going to move into our typical time of response. I want to challenge you. I mentioned earlier, if, if I have described your heart at any other point in this sermon, if you have been deceived to thinking that God was simply this caricature that was just all about loving you and that you could live your life the way that you desired, but have not responded in obedience and repentance to how God has called according to his truth and his standard, I encourage you to do that now. That's what this time is for. But church, it's not simply for that. It's not simply for the, the lost. It's not simply for the non-believer. This time of response is for all of us to respond to God's word. That's why it's a time of response. So I encourage all of you, if you need to respond by singing the truths of God's word and song, join in with singing. If you need to remain seated in prayer, do so. If you need to repent, do so. I'll be right here up front if you need to talk, if you need somebody to pray with you, if you need to respond to the Lord in repentance, I can help walk you through what that looks like. But however the Lord has pierced your heart to respond to his word, do so. Let's pray. God, we love you and we praise you. And we love you and we realize that we love you only because you have made your love known to us. So God, help us. Give us the necessary strength, endurance. Give us the circumcised hearts necessary to walk in obedience to your word and to show you the, uh, the proper love, the wholehearted affection that you call us to. Make us new. I pray, Lord, that if there be anyone here this morning that does not know you, has not responded to your truth, has not walked in accordance to your word and repentance, I pray that you would continue to draw them to yourself. Make yourself known. Overwhelm them to where they cannot resist. For those of us that know you, Lord, I pray, we pray, we seek grace where we have failed in accordance with all that we've read this morning. And we seek wisdom and strength to walk in obedience to it. For we know that we cannot do it on our own. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.